Welcome to another exciting installment of Just a Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> oh my, that sounds really terrible. Uh, what are we, mic one? Is that better? That's louder. Is that better? I think it's better. Okay. I'm sorry, I don't mean to waste your time, but we're sort of figuring this out as we go along, you know, and I'm really hesitant to edit anything, and the reason, well, the reason that I say is that I want to capture the spontaneity of the process, but really it's just a lot of work, and I don't feel like doing it, quite frankly. But from a listener standpoint, you know, as someone who was a radio enthusiast before I got into radio, these kinds of things were always interesting to me. But we got a couple of main topics that I'm going to cover today in no particular planned out way, because that's usually the way we do it. One day recently... I was out running errands. It's kind of my go-to activity on Saturday afternoons before 5 p.m. I'll formulate a loose list of things I need to get and the places where I'll get them. On this day, I've been from... I've been all over the map, really, from Winchester to Chambersburg, you know, at least locally speaking. So I was covering quite a bit of ground... By the way, I filled up my gas tank in Winchester, and gas was like 30 cents a gallon cheaper there than it was in Greencastle, so that's something to take into consideration. I really do need to uh, go into Virginia more because that's worth going out of the way. Anyway, so I, I did what I had to do in Winchester and did what I had to do in Hagerstown. I did what I had to do in Chambersburg. I'm headed home on Route 11 and I see a blue sign out of the corner of my eye. And instantly I thought, Marsh Run, because I'm so used to passing the many snaking, forking fingers of Marsh Run as it winds its way across the landscape, beaching everyone with a friendly little blue sign to let you know. But it wasn't Marsh Run. It was Muddy Run. My mistake, I thought. Must have gotten confused. Obviously, it's because South Central Pennsylvania's got the runs. <laughs> Please tell me somebody laughed at that. Anybody. So it's a good thing I was alone in the car when that thought occurred to me. There was no one there to hear me cackling like a parrot that got into his owner's acid stash. And now it was too late. I had taken a tumble down the rabbit hole, and now I was consumed with the runs. I realized that as much of Marsh Run as there was in PA, there was even more of it in Maryland. It's not... Unlike the Conakajig Creek, best known in my 
immediate vicinity for spawning the freeze. Oh, I'm gonna go save the jig. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. <laughs> and now a brief word about that accent right there. So I'm from Philadelphia originally. I spent my first nine years, the formative years, the learning to talk years, surrounded by Philly accents, real ones, that is, not the faux New York Stallone version. And it, it's been said that very rarely has the Philly accent been captured adequately in movies. I mean, I can number the Examples on one hand, there's Tony Collette in The Sixth Sense. Uh, let's, let's pause there for a moment. All right, Tony Collette is Australian. And I read once where it seems that Australian actresses seem to have an easier time learning American accents than people from other places. And easier than Australian men, apparently. <laughs> Anyway, over the years, during my childhood in Philadelphia, I had the chance to visit other places, you know, as you do. And I noticed other people spoke it differently. And, you know, I, I heard different accents on TV and in movies, so I guess that started to lay the groundwork for my interest in linguistics generally and accents specifically. My family first moved to Columbia, Maryland about 15 miles from Baltimore. I noticed that most of the people I met there initially seemed to be from all over because none of them sounded particularly local. And I would soon learn that my new home where I would spend most of the next 20 years was, in those days, a bedroom community for Washington, D.C., with a lot of government and government-related workers commuting into the capital. And eventually, I got to know some people who were local, and they had the definitive Baltimore accent, the one that would go on to be lampooned in several Barry Levinson movies. <laughs> Levinson was hardcore about being from Baltimore, even more, even more so than John Waters, if that's possible. If you've never seen Diner, check it out. It's, it's a great movie regardless, but it's very Baltimore. So the end result, I ended up with an accent that's almost 50-50 in Baltimore and Philadelphia. And that's been honed down pretty smoothly. Now, I was told during my initial training in radio that I should try to make my accent sound as neutral as possible to open up my job possibilities nationwide, only to wind up working about a dozen miles from where I was living in the mid-2000s, which 
I suppose just goes to demonstrate how things really do go full circle. And I've worked with people with regional accents before here at Bristanding, and some of them went totally the other way when the mic was on. You know, they put on one of those jive-ass DJ voices sound like Alan Freed with a particularly vicious hangover, you know? It's 1015! Like a game show announcer. I'm, you know, I've dabbled in that kind of thing, but only as an impression. I mean, if you remember the days of, uh, what did we even call it? Weather roulette? And I would draw one of a number of accents out of a box, and then whatever, I would do a forecast on that accent. It was like the cheapest show feature I think I've ever <laughs> had the courage to actually put on the air and people went crazy for it but it burnt to a crisp you know it just burned out. it burned out on me and it it burned out on some other people you know and some some of them had their favorites and uh, they wanted to hear those every time and it's you know it's like any time you do something like that it it just sort of got out of control, so I just said, yeah, we're going to pause this, put it on the shelf, and that was like two years ago, and I never got back to it again. And, that you know, I still have that box it's sitting there on a shelf in the air studio, so I can see it. When I'm on the air every day, I see it there, just waiting, just waiting for its time to come again. On the air, I was always instructed to keep it conversational, but professional. Speak clearly, uh, enunciate properly, but don't make it sound labored. I think I've done a decent job of that. I mean, certainly it's something that comes with experience, and I don't think working on your tone or diction or pronunciation or bad things and on radio the most crucial paramount thing is that the person listening that's you can understand what I'm saying and by understand I don't just mean hear but like comprehend you know when you hear a message and it's clear and it's phrased in a straightforward unambiguous manner it's going to make sense to you you got to understand it. That's the goal. And I've also worked with people who could not understand why changing their speech patterns would be beneficial. What's there to say about that, you know? I let it pass. Let someone else die on that hill. <laughs> someone feels that their own particular, you know, idiosyncrasies of speech are important to their persona. Who am I to disagree? But not me. I mean, I, I, at this point, you could place the accent as mid-Atlantic, but you'd be hard-pressed to be able to pin it down any more than that. Uh, when I lived in Columbia, I met a man who identified himself as a linguist. 
for the federal government. My job is a dealership service department shuttle driver. I picked them up from Fort Meade. And uh, as we drove back to town, we made small talk. And after a few minutes, he asked me, pardon me, but are you from Philadelphia originally? I was, yeah, I told him. Moved here when I was nine. He nodded. So I can tell by the way you pronounce certain things. What, what gave it away, I asked want to know. So the way you said towel for one thing, that's pure Philadelphia right there. And I was not surprised to hear that. If you ever find yourself chatting with someone and they say towel when they're referring to a towel, you got a genuine Philadelphia article on your hands. And be careful they, and by they, I mean me, are certifiably nuts. And as for the Baltimore E's, that one's a little more basic. The old long O, as in down the ocean, on example. All wanted to go to Camden Yards, see the Baltimore A's. When Cal broke the record, but we were down the ocean that week, so I heard it on the radio. All had a transistor on my beach towel. Funny thing to me is they they call that the Baltimore accent, but it's definitely not limited to Baltimore. I've heard it all over the state of Maryland, and at one point or another in time, I lived all over the state of Maryland. I lived in Columbia, Ellicott City, Woodlawn, Catonsville, Baltimore City, Brunswick, Frederick, and Hagerstown. I was gradually making my way west, you see. If I had moved to Pennsylvania, I would have gone on to Hancock, and then Cumberland, and then Prosper, Grantsville, Friendsville, and then presumably on to Morgantown as I began my conquest of West Virginia. But I chose to defy those expectations and hook back north. The truth is, I always wanted to make it back to Pennsylvania. I have nothing against Maryland, and I will say that I was pretty fortunate to have grown up in the place that I did, but Philly will always be my hometown, and the longest of my long-term goals is to get back there someday, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not in a big hurry, though, not anymore, anyway. I used to feel acute anxiety about being away Philadelphia. And now I know what that really was, though. That was just dissatisfaction with how I was living at the time. So I'm in a better place now. I love my job, and honestly, I love the tri-state. The place has become home to me. I've lived in Greencastle for 12 years now, longer than I've lived anywhere except for Columbia. I've been at this job for 15 years. It's longer by far than I've ever stayed at one job, like by a decade. <laughs> I mean, it's a big margin there. So, I mean, I say I love what I do, and I do, and it's, it's deeper than that. I feel like I belong here, and by here, I mean both where I work and where I live. I found my niche, I guess. A lot of people, when they get into radio, are thinking extreme long-term, like they want to 
work in some major market like LA or New York and that's cool I mean those are the biggest markets that's where the best of the best are that's where the big money is and all that stuff I'd, I'd like to be one of the best of the best and I don't mind I don't mind living and working in a major city but I can't help but feel like if I put myself in that position for one thing it would blow my anxiety through the roof. I mean, think about it. The pressure to perform when you're at the highest levels is incredibly intense. Of course, by the time you get to that point, you should be experienced enough that you know what to do, kind of like a professional athlete. You, gotta, you gain and sharpen the necessary skills. Now, you could also make an analogy to professional musicians. Now, I've been a musician a long time. I can play several instruments. I can sing. I can produce music tracks. Still, even with 30-plus years' experience, I'm always fascinated when I see a musician displaying the skill of their craft outside the usual setting. Follow me here. So they're called upon to sing the national anthem at a ball game, or sit in with an unfamiliar group, and they always just slide right in there and perform. I guess that's my problem. I'm not really a performer. I was a writer before anything else, and it's writing that led me to take up music. It's writing that got me into radio, and on those rare occasions when I imagine myself freed from the bonds of everyday modern life, earning a living through the art I create, the fantasy invariably ends with me sitting at a table in the well-appointed kitchen of some even probably large house working on the great American novel or my version of it. Will that ever happen? Probably not. I mean, I'll always write, of course, because I'll always find myself picking up a guitar and stringing chords together in tunes and some things really are I guess a, a deep down part of your DNA you know they're sort of in their own way intrinsic to your identity you know So it's, it's weird the many hats that we all wear in that respect. Um, you know, and, and, and what I mean by that is we all, we all take on various different roles in our own lives. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you're different things to different people. We all are that. And I believe the more identifiers you have, the more important it becomes to sort of establish your identity and maintain it. And because, you, you know, that's one of those things that you oftentimes don't realize how vitally 
important it is until it comes into question or is placed into jeopardy in some fashion. And quite frankly, when something like that occurs, it really is, it can be a, a shattering experience, honestly, that is difficult to recover from without professional help. But I, I, I kind of feel like you can sort of hurl yourself down a well by becoming too preoccupied with that sort of thing, you know? Uh, it's like uh, I read in a book about Jim Morrison, somebody that knew him was talking about uh, how he was uh, an obsessive reader of Nietzsche. And uh, that that's the sort of thing that if you... And Nietzsche himself even said this, but you you can dive too deep into that stuff, and it can sort of like subsume you, and it it can sort of eat you up, and it can sort of like strip away your your identity and your your sense of self. And the more I thought about that, the more I was like. That's, that's kind of frightening, you know? I mean, think about it. Some people go through their entire lives, and you might be fortunate enough to be one of them, but some people go through their entire lives and they never question their identity. They know who they are from the jump, from day one. They never question it. And for, for some people, the mirror will always lie. And the voice in your head will always lie. And everything is just like all confused and mixed up to the point where there are times when you don't even trust your own thinking. And it's pretty hardcore. Like, please don't leave me alone with my own mind. <laughs> it's a it's it's a frightening dark and lonely place to find yourself. I mean, I can't be the only one that, that, that has harbored those kind of thoughts. Even if it's not a constant consumption for, for you the way it has been in my case. Each little sliver and peace and part 
of what makes you who you are all there. All right. And there's that totality and that equals you as a self, you as a, a person, a singularity. But what if instead of it being like a picture, like a photo, when you look at that thing that occupies the space where you are, it's like just a big question mark, you know. It's like uh, like that. You remember that guy Matthew Lesko and his Riddler suit? They used to do his infomercials and sell his book of. I, I don't even know what it was. It was full of like money making things or, or something like that. But it, it's funny, you know, I, I, I remember seeing that guy in those commercials and thinking, you know, you know what would be cool to get a jacket with a big question mark on it? <laughs> not like, not like a suit with question marks all over it, but like, like a jacket, like a leather jacket or maybe a denim jacket or something like that. It would just like this like big stencil question mark on that. I think that's, in a way, it's sort of the perfect symbol because it is just totally ambiguous. <laughs> I mean, it's a symbol that can mean absolutely anything. It's like, it's like an X. You know, an X serves the same function. And it's not coincidental that a lot of people who want to kind of surrender their name will adopt X instead. Because X is sort of like, it's, you know, it's like the generic signature. If you're um, unable to write or, or whatever and you need to affirm uh legal document or something like that, you know, or, or, or printed out forms oftentimes will have an X. Sign at the X, you know. I mean, if you bought a house, if you bought a house, you have looked at probably thousands of pages like that. If you've bought a car, you've looked at hundreds of pages like that, going through the normal sort of, you know what I mean, the, the financing route and all of that. Uh, but anyway, you know, X is, is in its way kind of like the, the substitute for the identity, you know what I mean? And it is a substitute. It takes the place of your proper name. So I'm, I'm giving myself away at this point. It's probably increasingly clear that I'm <laughs> dangerously consumed with this whole thought. And, I mean, it doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, you don't...
you don't get to that point accidentally. You know, you don't stumble your way there. <laughs> you know, to, to be at that place is to be at the end of oftentimes a, a long and drawn-out process. And um, so you gotta, you got to just sort of go with it. But it was no, it was no cultural experience. I can tell you that much right now. But anyway, my my, my buddies uh, Jacques and Steve were they were both French speakers, so they would sit there and speak French to each other, and they laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And it's always weird when you have a group and a subset of that group, like a part of that group, is like speaking in a different language, known only to themselves. And I had... Uh, there was... <laughs> when I was about 17, 16, 17, something like that, there was this girl in my neighborhood that I was trying to get to know, like something awful and uh, I uh, finally with the help of some of my buddies I uh, worked up the nerve and asked her to my school's homecoming. She didn't go to my school so she went to private school and uh, so we're, we're hanging out this is like later on, like I don't know, like a couple of weeks later or something like that. Her family's hosting this French foreign exchange student because of that whatever the private school was she went to, they were part of that program. And her and this other girl, we hung out with a group of, you know, I mean, like you do when you're a teenager. And they're just doing the same thing, just yakking away in French. And uh, it was one of the other girls that was there pulled me aside and said, you know, they're trashing you, man. <laughs> I was like, huh, well, that's, that's good to know. Appreciate that. I'll tell you what, there's like you just feel like total dirt, you know? Just total dirt. So with, with, with Jock and Steve, it was the same sort of thing. And, and they were talking away in French, and I asked him one day, I said, what do you guys talk about? And... It was like, honestly, most of the time we're, like, making fun of you, <laughs> which was exactly what I expected. But you, he meant us, all of us, Americans. You know, it's funny. In Europe, 
everybody goes everywhere. It's a lot easier to go everywhere when everywhere is a lot closer. Talk about how there's a bunch of countries over there. Okay, but the entire continent, just about, could fit inside the continental U.S. And you can drive for a week straight and still be in the U.S. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in Western Europe, you drive for that long, you'll be out of it. You'll be, like, in Russia somewhere. <laughs> and it's funny because, you know, going back to what I was initially saying about accents, you know, this is more than accents. This is, like, imagine like two nations as far apart as PA and West Virginia. And they speak different languages completely. Of course, a lot of people are bilingual. You know, people whose first language is like French or Italian or German or what have you. Most of them do also speak English because English is such a it's 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 a international language in many ways and it became international largely due to the fact that Americans are too stubborn to learn anything, I think, is what happened there. You know, and a couple world wars later and everybody knows English now. You know, and, and look, I, I again, I want to stress here, I have no first-hand experience of this whatsoever, okay? None. I, 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 I don't know anything about it. I've never been there, so a lot of anything that I might be talking about here is anecdotal. And secondhand, you know, accidentally set your TV to Espanol or something like that and actually listened. And you realize you probably understand more than you thought because there's a lot of cultural osmosis going on there you know the kind of thing that it just sinks in even you know especially I guess when you're not really paying attention I mean I had a situation not long ago where I was playing with a band trying to sort of get up to speed and master the back catalog and, and all that stuff. And I just I had a rough patch there and had a very protracted depressive episode and that really sort of Put the brakes 
it was impossible to to learn and and I I got to the point where I was having to force myself to practice and that's when I just said it is not fair for me to keep showing up and wasting these people's time you know I don't know all of these songs yet and it's a month it's three weeks something like that it's you know four songs I should have been able to do it by then but I did not have my full creative faculties devote to it and that's just not it's not fair you know and so I stepped out and I was very fortunate that all the response I got about it was support very very much so and I'm eternally grateful for that I'm also, though, eternally disappointed that it didn't work. What, what, what are you going to do? You know, and I'm kind of wondering if maybe getting into an established thing is not the way to go. I mean, I'm 0 for 2 at this point. You know, replacing members, it's a roll of the dice. It really is, because you really, you just don't know. I mean, somebody can come in and have a fantastic audition, you know, just absolutely stellar, just out of the ballpark. And every sort of tangible is there. Musicianship is there. Songwriting is there. Vocal abilities there. Instrumental. It's a package, you know. Like from a musical standpoint, this person is solid the whole way through, just concrete. So you get them in, and. You know, being in a band requires you to navigate a lot of, frankly, bizarre situations. You know, doing doing gigs and dealing with venues and dealing with scumbags who don't want to pay you, they don't want to feed you, and whatever, and driving lots of hours and if you're lucky, sleeping in motels and, you know, the whole thing. And there's a whole sort of, like, sub-genre of rock and roll songs that are all about the road. For whatever reason, in the 80s, it was like... It's like every rock album had to have the road song on there. And I, 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 I you know, I was honestly just about to say I blame that on Bon Jovi, but no, that, that's actually not true. I blame it on Bob Seger, because uh, Turn the Page was the first one of those that I can ever, I can remember ever hearing. There were probably others that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head, but it was very specifically a touring thing, 
Like, this is what happens on the road to the point where it becomes a cliche because you've heard it all, quite frankly, many times over. And I, I don't really know why, again, but that concept really, it really went downhill and picked up a lot of speed in the 80s. It was like, it snowballed. I guess that's the tormented analogy I was fishing for right there. It did, and it was a huge thing, and, you know, I could probably devote a whole future podcast episode to, like, a countdown of road songs, like a top ten. I don't know. I don't know if we can play music on these things or what. I don't. I don't really know what the, you know, what the what the legalities are. I'll have to look into that. I suppose. I mean, even if I can't play, I could still talk about it. I can still review it. Maybe what we do is just I'll tell you what the song is. And you can listen to it while you listen to this, like riff tracks. <laughs> we'll go with that. Okay. I think we're done now. <laughs> Next time on Just a Podcast, I will or will not follow up on any of the ideas that I mentioned here. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Thanks for listening. I'm Just Bob. Bye.